0: This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US, and Hong Kong-listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only, That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Stephen, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast today.
1: Hi, Aren. An absolute pleasure to be here.
0: It's been a journey for you and I. You've been on the, the podcast a few times, and I've been fortunate to see Aorus grow and, and deliver on expectations for clients over a very long period of time. And I know our listeners love hearing from you because the message that you you have is consistent, it's elegant, it's long-term focused, and it's really common sense. Business first value investing, I think is how you describe it in terms of that, that kind of interplay between value and quality. Can I ask just kind of like a self-reflection question, Stephen, which is you've crossed your three-year track record now, um, which is a key hurdle for a lot of fund managers. What are some of the lessons from running ARS for
1: such a long time? Well, thanks, Owen. It's been an exciting and rewarding start to what we hope to be a long journey. Uh, We crossed our three-year track record at the end of March. We're now running well over 400 million of client assets. Our investment returns since inception have been about 15%, which is well above uh, 8 to 12% through the cycle target, above our benchmark and above the majority of our peers. Um, So after a good start, we've got a really high class, high caliber investment team of five people. And we feel the business has got good foundations. And I think the journey so far has given me more and more confidence that our approach of owning the high quality businesses that we talk about, durable growing businesses that we can understand is a great way for long-term compounding of wealth.
0: Mm. You mentioned the 8 to 12 and how you've uh, achieved 15. And also, you know, $400 million is a lot of money for what we, we were just talking off air, what might be considered, you know, a boutique business, you know, a business in your own right. I guess, did you expect it to be where it is today when you set out on this journey?
1: I, th- I think it's evolving broadly in line with our expectations. And we know that clients have got a lot of choices, in fact, more choices than they had uh, even just three years ago. So we have to commu- communicate what we do, clearly uh, help people understand what we stand for and work out those people for whom we're a good fit and over time uh, deliver on those expectations and, uh, you know, be clear about what we what we hold ourselves out uh, to do and, and, and not do and uh, give clients a a good long-term experience.
0: Do you think there's, Stephen, this is a bit of a kind of a digression, but do you think there's an advantage with being, quote, unquote, boutique business over, say, being um, part of a larger kind of mothership if you think about it like that?
1: Well, I think, look, certainly for us, and we can't speak to what works for other people, but um, as we observe and think about where the, the the cohort of investors that you know, many people would regard as being the world's best investors across asset classes and certainly across equities, um, the sort that we certainly have in our, our library here at AORUS and we read about and you'd find on many business and finance bookshelves. Um, the structure of almost all of those businesses Uh, founder-led boutiques. Um, Rarely do you find those sorts of aspirational, high-caliber investment firms within an insurance company, a bank or a brokerage firm. Um, So I think there's a message in that. And for us, it allows us to uh, be committed to the path that we've chosen, not get distracted by other groups within a larger financial services firm that might be encouraging you to come out with product variants that might suit today's investor needs, whether it's a long, short fund or a tech fund. Um, and I think it really allows us to uh, stay true to label and to you know, stay true to our course without, as I said, the distractions or the being pulled in different directions. It's often the case within uh, a larger financial services organisation
0: got mm. one more question for you before we get to a company that I know you're really interested in. And it's a company that many people know, um, but it, it's a really fascinating conversation we're going to have. And that's just for you personally, running your own business while also investing. You know, there's that famous Warren Buffett quote about better investor because he's a business person, better business person because he's an investor. For you personally, do you still love it each day when you can come into the office and, and get on the tools, so to speak, you know, read the annual reports or the 10Ks? listen to the calls and chat with the team about companies. Is that still what really excites you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's learning about businesses and continuing to learn about investing. And I think what, what I often reflect on you know, with great satisfaction is how much more learning there is to do, <laughs> both from the, if you like, the investment wisdom, the framework, the uh, dis- dis- decision tools that you embed and hardwire into your mind to help you make better investment decisions, your own investment framework, your mental models, if you like. Uh, there's a lot more to know and, and you know, periodically we feel like we've discovered another one or we've heard someone articulate uh, their view of the world and it resonates and it's great. You know, we've got another tool in our toolbox or another way of thinking about the world and businesses. And equally when we're looking at individual businesses like the one we're going to talk about today, uh, it's exciting for that even though we may have known it for many, many years, there's, there's always layers to pull back it's not just knowing more about it, it's understanding it better and getting deeper insights into what makes it special, how the business thinks, what makes it durable. Um, so I, I find that immensely satisfying. Um, on the one hand, it's humbling to know how much you don't know but also rewarding you know, as you continue on that journey of, of knowing and understanding individual businesses better and developing your own mental models that you know, hopefully, as we look forward, will help us to make better investment decisions. For
0: sure. For sure. Okay, let's get into one of these companies, the company that we're going to talk about today, which is a business that many of the listeners would know quite well, both male and female, because it's a household name right around the world. And it's a business called L'Oreal. Maybe can you st- start with, Stephen, I guess, what the business does from a from a higher level perspective and some of the things that they might not know about it, because you know we know the name but maybe we're not across, I guess, the business itself and what really drives it.
1: Great. Well, it's a, it's a conversation I've been looking forward to have. <laughs> and, when, and when at always we talk about wanting to own high-quality businesses that are durable, profitable, and grow through time, you know, it would be hard to find a better example than L'Oreal. Uh, so the business, uh, which we all, all know the name, was founded in 1909, uh, and the origins of the business in Paris were to help professional salons um, you know, serve their clients with... Products that didn't damage hair, uh, so those products um, were, a lot, were a lot different more than a century ago. And so the sole, the origins of the business is in the professional market, uh, and it comes from a, a products that were just you know, chemical-free or, or damaged uh, their clients' hair a lot less than what was common at the time. So over, that, over that, that journey, the business has certainly proved very durable. There's many, been many world events and challenges in the last in 111 years. And right now, what's special about it? What's different? Well, the business is enormously broad. It serves every part of the beauty market from the professional market through brands like uh, Redken to the sorts of products you'd find in a pharmacy, uh, to the sorts of products you'd find if, in an airport, what they might call uh, travel beauty, and products that um, – uh, sold in department stores, in the high, higher end products. It does it does that in every country in the world pretty much. And it does it across skincare, hair care, fragrances, and makeup. Um, and that breadth is enormously valuable to the business. It provides a lot of robustness, uh, durability, and also provides a lot of scale muscle. Mm.
0: You said it's over 100 years old. I can't think of too many companies that you get excited about investing in that are over hundred years old, Stephen. So, how? Do, I guess one of the questions that's interesting with a business like this is that it's right in front of you, like it's right in front of consumers, it's right in front of investors. How did you find it? Like, how did you just think this is an interesting company? Like, what was it initially that got you excited about
1: it? Look, I think sometimes the 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 best businesses, or certainly the one, most interesting ones for us, uh, are oftentimes hiding in plain sight, and I think it's a good reminder that uh, just because something is is visible doesn't mean it's well understood uh, and it certainly doesn't mean that it's uh, properly priced by the market um, I think what you know, some of the things ways in which we might uh, see the magic of L'Oreal, if you like, a little bit differently from um, the, the, the broader markets. Like at, at any at any given point in time, it's not the most exciting business because uh, whether it's you know, cloud computing or electric vehicles or cybersecurity, there's there's something else that sounds more exciting today. But over many many years, the compounding of L'Oreal's growth has been just enormously powerful, um, and it's led to earnings growth and wealth creation far far in excess of an average business. And, and I think that. Uh, that patient compounding uh, is easily underestimated, and just takes a longer-term view, and the uh, the ability of the business to continue uh, year after year to outgrow uh, what is already an attractive market. It's a market that, for it grows faster than the broader economy. Uh, in fact, in even into the GFC, the beauty industry globally grew, and L'Oreal's got a remarkably consistent record. Of consistently outgrowing that, um, and and there's something quite special in that consistency of of uh, superior performance relative to their broader markets.
0: Interesting, right? Because you you know everyone knows L'Oreal's like the brand; it's the big brand around the world. But yet you see so many when you go into like I don't know. I'm just going to so I don't go into these stores often, so I'm just going to throw a few names at So You go into a Mac store or you shop at you know on Adore door beauty. You, you look at these stores and you see multiple brands, right? Like you see some. You know, lots of modern brands and brands that are kind of up and coming, and they're alongside other brands. So these professional brands, these higher end brands like L'Oreal. How does L'Oreal stay relevant, and how do you, how are you thinking about the competitive position of the business?
1: Well, I think that's a, it's a great and very very pertinent question, and uh, I think there's a few different ways to think about it and dimension it. Um, what, what, one is that beauty is all the company has done, uh, and it's all that they've ever done, and that's not true for some of their larger peers like. Unilever uh, that does a lot of other things and beauty. So I think a uh, focus is really part of what makes the business special. Um, another part is how they've organized internally. And you know, this might sound a bit abstract, uh, but I think it's very, very real. And the company works very hard to have what they call a decentralized model where uh, the people running the Lancome brand in, brand in Australia or the people running Redken brand in Brazil, you know, they own it and they're in control of it. So what they're trying to do is get all the benefits of their size and scale but have the flexibility, the agility, the entrepreneurial feel of a very small company and they do it, it's really hardwired into their their DNA so to speak Um, and that's how they've operated for a long period of time and certainly benefited them when markets changed as they did in many ways in the last year uh, because they're not waiting for a phone call from Paris to tell people what to do. Um, It's driven and controlled from the people who are closest uh, to their customers. So when we think about how that squares up with the the what, what you rightly call out a very fragmented industry now L'Oreal globally has about twelve percent of the total beauty market so uh, they're the largest and there's another there's a lot more uh, in the hands of many many small companies but when we think about how L'Oreal succeeds in what is a fragmented market where uh, you might rightly say well you know what it's uh, the barriers to entry have come down it's easier to create a new brand and find some influencers to support you and and get some distribution. But what we also know for those, those, those newer brands is um, it's hard to really be, be sustainable. Now, if you think about uh, searching for makeup on Amazon, then people rarely go, rarely go past page two. Uh, and, when, and, and we know what makes up page one and page two is the biggest brands. Um, so it's hard to stand out. And, and we were told a couple of years ago by LVMH, would you believe, uh, that in the UK, in the five years to 2018, there were 2,000 new makeup brands, not beauty, but makeup brands created. And at the end of that five-year period, the number of those brands that had sales of more than 10 million pounds, which is still pretty small, was uh, was less than 10 and so it's, there's a, a lot of churn, a lot of attrition. Um, now, that does in some ways support the market. It brings interest and excitement, uh, draws people into the shop perhaps. But when they get there and certainly when they go online, there's enormous value in being the biggest brands. And that was even more true in 2020 where consumers oftentimes in, in periods of you know, uncertainty and stress gravitate towards the large brands that they know and trust. And that's why L'Oreal had such a good year last year. Would you
0: say that then kind of more consumers shopping online is a, is a good or a bad thing for L'Oreal? Uh,
1: well, it's good for L'Oreal. Now, here's an interesting point that 10 years ago, in fact, 11 years ago, in 2010, L'Oreal CEO at the time declared 2010 the year of digital. Um, so I think that they were early and they were very, very committed to it. You know, they'd said years ago that the most important thing for every manager and every L'Oreal business in every country in the world is digital. Um, And that's two things. It's digital commerce and it's digital communication. So they have, as I said, 12% of the beauty market globally. But if you think about all the searches for beauty videos on YouTube, L'Oreal has one in two. So their share online is higher than their share of the beauty market offline. And when it comes to digital communication, the the YouTube platforms and all the social media, L'Oreal punches way above its weight. That comes from... Again, the benefits of size and scale, their commitment to it, they're early, they're sophisticated. Uh, They have a vast army of people internally that work on their digital communication, uh, their social media presence, their influences. And right now the beauty market globally, one in $4 is online and L'Oreal expects that to to get to one in two. And uh, that continued evolution online will certainly be beneficial to L'Oreal because they're even stronger online than they are offline.
0: That's a really interesting insight, isn't it? Because that kind of shift is kind of structural. You know, we don't th- see the internet going away anytime soon and e-commerce is- doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. So if it's capturing more of that funnel, that's actually a pretty strong catalyst, right? Like did, did, I, I guess you put some weight on that in, in terms of your thesis, like looking out into the future.
1: Oh, definitely. It's up there. 60% of their advertising dollars are now online and they get more bang for the buck, so to speak, than a than a billboard, perhaps, and that's that means that the, that uh, those dollars are more impactful. They get higher margins online. They've got strong partnerships, not only uh, with their own beauty e-commerce channels, but with the T malls and uh, the Amazons as well, and the e-commerce sites of the world's largest retailers. A few years ago, they they bought a Canadian business called Modiface, uh, that's an uh, artificial intelligence business, but it allows customers to. For virtual try-ons, and that's become very valuable. They can provide that service to partners like an Amazon or a T-mall. and people can, what would I look like with this color or what would I look like with that color? Um, And that's just one one, one other way that they've been impactful and sophisticated in that transition to online.
0: I think I remember seeing, I don't know if it was you that mentioned this to me previously, but I remember seeing that you can actually, in effect, it's like a selfie but actually you can select the makeup brands kind of like on a reel. You can just select that one is what I want to look. What does that look like on my face? Exactly. That's incredible when you think about it, how far we've come and how L'Oreal's positioned for that.
1: Yeah, and that's another example of, that a product like that, an acquisition like that's much more valuable to them than to a small player because L'Oreal can leverage it across all of its relationships, all of its countries, all of its brands, and it's become just a very effective tool for them in that digital transition.
0: Mm. One of the things that you touched on before was effectively the management structure and and, and kind of you you touched on it briefly with COVID being that shift to online. How did management respond to that? Like what were you looking at then? I guess, were you impressed with how they responded to kind of the challenges and difficulties that COVID presented?
1: Yeah, I think we, we were absolutely. And what we found through COVID is some of the cultural aspects of a business come to the fore that aren't obvious in an ordinary year. And let me go through a few of them because there certainly was more than one. Uh, one of them was a, a sense of agility, and they were very strong to recognize what was happening and... It was because they they saw it from their local operations in China. So they were were one of the first companies globally to implement a corporate-wide travel ban in February of last year. Right. Number two, they remain committed to staying the course in terms of investing in their brands and product launches uh, because they know that as the largest in their industry, uh, their retailers, their consumers are looking for them to come out with new things, you know, stay relevant. What they did is they pushed those product launches from the first half to the second half, but they also knew that a lot of their their competitors were pulling back and just not spending those dollars, not supporting the market, not supporting the retailers. And there were periods where L'Oreal said, you know what, you know, we're the only voice. And so that was you know helped to support their market share because it didn't pull back. And the third thing is that, uh, as I mentioned before, the company's origins are in the professional salon market. And they have 16,000 independent professional salons around the world, almost all of which were closed for a lot of last year. And they said, well, we're here to support you. Uh, Whatever you owe us from last month's bill, don't worry about it. We'll sort that out in time, but we're not going to make life difficult for you today by knocking on your door asking for money. But what we can do is support you. you, You've got customers that will eventually come back and they want to hear from you. Let's give you some videos that you can support in turn supply to them so that when they're dyeing their hair at home, it's not a disaster and they'll appreciate that from you. It keeps you relevant and keeps L'Oreal relevant. And that created a lot of goodwill and as those salons came back to to life late last year, L'Oreal took a lot of market share and and drew on that goodwill. So I think that's sensible long-term thinking, the investment in the brands, the uh, the agility and the, the support of the professional salons um, that in an ordinary year may not be so obvious but it came to the fore last year and uh, as L'Oreal's really growing strongly at the start of uh, 2021 including in that seller market it's showing you know the payoff from those sensible decisions they took last year
0: mm, it, because it would have been so much easier if you think about people being at home stuck at home That's not as many people putting makeup on their face they just don't think they're not thinking that way right because why would they if they're stuck at home and it's maybe only them at home so to, to kind of Buck that trend and reinvest more into that that channel. It's, it's kind of like a stroke of genius, I guess. Crisis is the opportunity. At least that's the way they saw it.
1: Yeah, and they never lost confidence in their market. They didn't lose confidence in themselves. They didn't you know, batten down the hatches and pull back. Uh, they Early into COVID, they said, look, our view is this is not a demand crisis. It's a supply crisis. Uh, people want to go out. They want to uh, look after their skin, uh, look after their uh, wear makeup." Right now, they can't, but it's not because they don't want to. And so, we'll continue to support our brands, our innovation, our product launches, the vitality, continue to communicate with our customers. And you know, through March and April, you know, the market is recovering very, very strongly. And in that rapidly accelerating market, L'Oreal is taking a lot of market share. Yeah, it's very encouraging.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe if we can just tie this back into Aorus and the portfolio. How long have you held? L'Oreal
1: for in the portfolio? Yeah, well, you you asked at the outset about uh, our three-year and change journey and and L'Oreal's been in the portfolio from day one.
0: Really? Do you keep a tab on the average holding period of a position inside the portfolio?
1: Look, we would expect it to be in the order of three or four years and uh, the last couple of years markets have been a bit bit stronger than we would say is normal and so there's a few positions that we've exited purely because of price. We love the business just as much. We don't love the price as much. And that uh, those valuation-based sales will create higher turnover for a period, but over a handful of years, I would expect our average holding period to be you know, closer to four years.
0: We've talked about this before, Stephen, but effectively, just as a, okay, just a general kind of stroke here. How do you think about the valuation of a company like L'Oreal? Like, what are the kind of things that you think about when you when you make that decision? Well.
1: We think about uh, the rate at which the business can compound in value over time, and that comes from earnings growth and how management reinvests the capital the business is generating. Uh, and We also think hard about the risk, you know, the risk that the business goes off the rails, so to speak, uh, loses market share or relevance, the risk that by having too much debt, they encounter bumps in the road or you know, management you know, turns out to be not a good um, a captain of the ship, so to speak, or steward of the business's franchise Um, So through those lenses of, you know, quality and growth, you know, we come up with what we think the business is worth. We're trying to err on the side of conservatism. But for a business like L'Oreal, it certainly trades at a substantial premium to the market, Uh, but where I think over time L'Oreal will deliver on the expectations that are, if you like, embedded in that valuation is a very strong recovery out of COVID, not only as the market recovers but as they take a lot of market share and benefit from the investments that they made last year. And then the continuation of that compounding journey we talked about before that in an attractive market, they've got a great record of continuing to take share and doing it at very, very attractive margins. Uh, so on, on, on today's multiple, optically, it looks expensive, but you know, through the fullness of time, I think it'll generate you know, quite decent outcomes for an investor.
0: You know, just reflecting on that, but also on what you said before that you expect the probably the average holding period, let's say, to be three to four years. That's how long a position might stay in the portfolio. Did you know that and I can't remember where the study came from, but I read it last week. Did you know that the median holding period for a fund manager is seven point four months?
1: Well, I've heard statistics like it, not that particular one, and it's um, you know, quite confronting. And how do you square that with a lot of people's premise that they're long-term investors? And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a real it's a real puzzle. Quite quite a stark statistic. Uh, so you're at the other end of the spectrum, I think.
0: <laughs> That's it. Yeah, and um, I guess. Because you mentioned turnover there, a lot of investors don't think about that enough, in my opinion. The turnover because turnover creates it crystallizes tax for a lot of people, right? And it and that turnover creates frictional costs as well, other frictional costs. So there's so many benefits to a longer holding period. I feel like maybe yeah, there's a bit of there's a few other factors that are impacting those fund managers. And I think this if we look this back into the beginning of the conversation where we talked about being the captain of your own ship, you know, kind of being able to control that experience for your clients, I think that's kind of like a competitive advantage that that you're going to be able to recognise over time. Anyway, that's just my, my closing thought on that comment.
1: Yeah, look, I think I'd just, I just uh, circle back and circle. I think for a lot of people there's a compulsion to come into the office as an investor and, and do something, um, you know, tr- tr- trading and make changes. Uh, for us, what we want to do as long-term investors is let the company's wealth creation do the heavy lifting for us and as owners of a business like a L'Oreal uh, and others that we've talked about, we're benefiting from the growth in value of that business, the ways in which management steer their ship and reinvest capital intelligently. Uh, and if we can own it at or below what it's worth, then you know, valuation will be another layer, another uh, source of investment outcomes for us. But the bulk of it uh, will come from what they're doing. And we want to let time, uh, time be our friend and let compounding do the work for us and not short circuit that process if you like by doing by trading every six months which which perhaps is more common for other investors
0: Mm, for sure it is Stephen, as always it's a pleasure to chat to you i'll put links to the to the website and to all the videos and and write-ups that you guys are doing quarterlies etc um in the show notes so if you're interested in hearing more from Stephen, please follow that that link and introduce yourself to the team Stephen, always a pleasure to chat to you so thanks for taking the time today
1: an absolute pleasure owen thank you so much